At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Georgia's U.S. Senate race is one of the tightest, most closely watched contests in the country. Tonight here in Savannah, the top two candidates will meet on the debate stage for the first and likely only time. There's too much at stake, and if we stand together and work together and pray together and vote together, we will win this election one more time. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is fighting for a full term in Washington. His Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, is trying to combat a string of controversies. They'll do whatever it takes, say whatever they have to say because they want this seat right here. But I don't think they know that they woke up a bear. The football legend has tried to lower expectations for his debate performance. I'm this country boy, you know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher, he's a smart man, wear these nice suits. So he's gonna show up and embarrass me at the debate October 14th. And I'm just waiting, you know, I show up and I'm gonna do my best. The stakes are high, so most candidates spend hours on prep, sometimes with a stand-in for their opponent. That's what's going to feel like on on game day is people are just going to say things and it's not going to be written down and um, that that adds more of a real world feel to it. Reporters from around the country are flocking to Savannah. Does this even matter? Like, is this is this just performative? Is it relevant? I think that that's I think that that's a question that we should ask. What to watch for in the marquee debate between Georgia's top Senate candidates. And later, we'll talk to NPR voting reporter Miles Parks. I'm Sam Greenglass, politics reporter at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Raul Bally, also a WABE politics reporter. I'm Susanna Capaluto, WABE politics editor. Emma Heard of Axios is on assignment. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a campaign podcast from WABE. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote because I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Let's start with the controversy driving headlines right now. Reports that Walker paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion despite his vocal stance against the procedure as a candidate. Walker has denied the accounts. How much will Warnock press Walker on this recent controversies? And will Walker be able to effectively respond to this criticism? So this answer is kind of two parts for me. First, it's going to depend on the format of the debate. You know, some debates allow candidates to ask questions to each other. From what I've heard, that might not be in tonight's format. And But, you know, just because it's not in the format doesn't mean it may not still happen. You know, I've seen plenty of debates and I've been involved with them where candidates don't answer the panelist question, but rather the question they want to answer. And look, we've been seeing that on the campaign trail. You'll ask a a question of a Republican candidate about abortion and they spin it towards the economy. You ask a Democratic candidate about the economy and they spin it towards gun violence. So I think, yes, you're going to see some engagement on that. Second, it will depend if candidates want to go there. You know, does does Senator Warnock want to bring this up? Will debate panelists bring it up and how will they bring it up? And even Herschel Walker may decide to bring it up on his own. In the end, what to me I'm always watching for is so many moments they get repeated in the news media and on social media 
are those candidate versus candidate engagements. And that's what I'm going to be watching for tonight. And I think the margin for error here is high, at least for Walker's camp. I mean, he has stumbled through his response to the stories so far, sometimes offering contradictory and confusing statements about some of the details in the stories. And, you know, I was with Walker at a rally in Carrollton this week, and he used a parable about a bull in a pasture with three specifically pregnant cows eyeing some other cows that didn't belong to him. Uh, He was talking about America being the greatest country in the world. That was the point of the story. But it's kind of a weird anecdote to bring up given everything that's happened lately. And it does make me question whether he has the ability to shift the narrative of all that's unfolded. Friday's debate will be the biggest stage yet for pointed questions about the stories. And Raul, as you mentioned, Warnock and other Democrats have not commented a ton on them so far. And so I'm very curious to see whether Warnock is the one to bring up these stories. Or like you said, it comes from the moderators or perhaps even Walker himself wanting to get ahead of the questioning on it. Raul, you've been looking into what goes into practicing for an important debate like this. Give us the scoop. So during the 2020 election cycle, Democratic State Representative Josh McLaurin played the role of then U.S. Senator David Perdue in debate prep sessions for now U.S. Senator John Ossoff. I caught up with McLaurin at a Starbucks in Atlanta and because I really wanted to hear about this. And and he told me it started off with just a cold call from the Ossoff campaign and that he had never really done anything like this. I watched some YouTube videos of Purdue and uh, tried to get a sense of his uh, substance, but also his style. The comms team had research. They knew what David Purdue was likely to say. They prepared substance for the debate, both questions and answers that reflected that. Um, and but, but I will say there were some times when I did get the opportunity to ad lib, and that was pretty fun because, uh, you know, you don't want to just uh, show up and read something. You want to, uh, you know, bring a little flourish to it. It's kind of a performance. And it's fun to do. I wanted to know how he would play Herschel Walker. I would say anybody who wants to recreate Herschel's presence would would try to nail his style more than anything. And, you know, hard to say, like some of his his public statements have not been the most coherent, I think is fair to say, and people on both sides would acknowledge that. And so I don't know that you can, with any precision, predict exactly what he's going to say. But he's got a certain brand of confidence in this race that he's trying to cash in on this former football star, you know, darling of the base type energy. And, and honestly, in some ways, that's not too far off from where David Perdue was. So let me tell you the level of detail. You know, one of those debates in 2020 was a Zoom debate. So they practiced the whole debate as a Zoom debate, even having people stand in as a reporter and, and stand ins for the moderator. So that was the amount of detail and prep that goes into these things. So I'm sure the candidates have been doing their prep. Now, Walker has set really low expectations for his performance. Will that work? Yeah, I mean, we heard him talking about that at the top, being a country boy and Warnock has the nice suits and he's going to embarrass him on the debate stage. You know, I heard that again from Walker in Carrollton this week. So he's still sticking with that expectation lowering tactic. Now, I talked to one debate expert, Ed Lee, who's the director of debate at Emory University. And he said to him, that's like forfeiting the game before you've even played it and basically admitting to the public that you're not capable of being Georgia's voice on the national stage. Washington. But 
You can see a world where Walker holds his own, at least doesn't get trampled, and he gets a passing grade from voters who were on the fence and were just looking to see how he would perform in the spotlight. Honestly, I don't know what to expect. We haven't seen Walker on a debate stage before, and I certainly haven't seen these two guys even in the same room before. So I think there could be a lot of surprises tonight. Now, the big question, I mean, do these debates even matter? Well, one lens of that do they matter question is whether they move the needle with voters or are they mostly just for political nerds like us on this podcast who want to you know grab some popcorn and dissect how the candidates performed we do know that something like six percent of georgia voters have not made up their minds in the senate race that's at least according to a recent poll that wabe participated in and you know i've met some independent-minded voters who are still unsure what to make of the controversy surrounding walker So it's possible to imagine this debate could help them maybe decide one way or the other. But let me just get a little more existential here for a moment. Ed Lee, the debate director at Emory, says there's something else that is important about debates, especially in a moment when candidates have called into question the legitimacy of elections and after allies of former President Trump tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after the 2020 election. Two different political actors show up, engage with each other, and then at the end of that engagement to shake their hands and say, meet you another day. And that the way in which debates should function is to sow those seeds of civil, civic engagement that allows for the transition of power to take place both at a state level and nationally. So I want to go back to my conversation with State Representative Josh McLaurin, and and something interesting he added to our conversation about whether debates matter. I'm a lawyer. People say the same thing about oral argument in court sometimes, right? Like, does it really matter? The judges have the briefs already, which is all written down. All the arguments are baked. You know, you could be cynical like that about the the viewing public. Well, people are either Democrats or Republicans, or you know, they they already know what they think and no debate's going to change that. I think sometimes people think that way about debates, but I think it's so vitally important to participate in this process because again, talking about that clash of styles and presence, people intuitively know when other people are prepared for leadership. To me, the most interesting thing I'm going to be watching for coming out of the debate, first of all, is any kind of viral or even social media moment that that comes out of this debate. And then the other thing is I'm going to be watching the polling numbers, whether they're polling numbers uh, that are taken after the debate or because of the debate to see if there's any movement around either one of these candidates after a debate. The WABE politics team is on the ground in Savannah, so make WABE your source for debate coverage. We're at 90.1 on the radio here in your podcast feed and at WABE.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Capaluto. I'm at Gring Sam, G-R-I-N-G-S-A-M. And I'm at Raul Bally. That's R-A-H-U-L-B-A-L-I. And when we come back, we'll talk to NPR reporter Miles Parks, who covers voting. This is Georgia Votes 2022 from WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. 
Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022. We've got a special guest today, NPR's Miles Parks from the NPR Politics Podcast. The pod is doing a live taping October 20th at the Buckhead Theater. And your invited tickets are available online. Just go to wabe.org slash events. Miles will be there along with a squad of NPR Politics reporters and our very own Raul Bali. Well, welcome, Miles. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about the show, too. So we've been talking about the upcoming Senate debate here between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Miles, you've got a bit more of a bird's eye view than we do as a national reporter. How does Georgia fit into the battle for control of the U.S. Senate? I mean, you know, we've only really got a handful of states, I think it's fair to say, that are going to decide who controls the Senate and who controls Congress. I think when you look at Georgia specifically, too, as somebody, you know, my specialization is voting and election systems. I almost think Georgia is going to be the most highly watched state in the entire country because you have the mix of all of the lies and misinformation around the 2020 election that have kind of not stopped over the last two years. And then you put on top of that one of the most competitive seats in the country. I think that when we talk about kind of um, races that get a lot of attention, I think something that a lot of people don't mention is how important margin is. And as we know, Georgia, you know, in 2020 had one of the thinnest margins in the entire country. And I think it's fair to expect that that happens again. So, Miles, you mentioned that your beat is voting election administration. Can you just talk a little bit about how important your beat has become over the last couple of years? I know this is a beat that has existed for a while, but it seems like it has not had this kind of focus until, I guess, especially after the 2020 election. It hasn't. And I think it's been it's been really interesting. I started on this beat, you know, in late 2017, and it's been really wild to kind of watch it evolve uh, into something that, you know, in 2017, 2018, 2019, it was kind of a wonky beat. Uh, you know, I would do all of these stories kind of trying to explain the election system for the common person and they wouldn't get much attention. Like people really weren't thinking that much about how their voting systems worked, which I think is part of the reason why the lies around the 2020 election were so effective for a big portion of the population is because voting systems are kind of misunderstood. But I think, you know, January 6th, 2021, obviously showed everyone that this is a really, really important issue that if a big portion of the population misunderstands how these systems work, it can lead to violence and it can lead to the downfall of the country. I wanted to ask you about some of the things we're seeing here in Georgia and you're seeing around the country. Earlier this week, I went to the Cobb County Board of Elections meeting and on the agenda was a challenge to the registration of 1,350 voters. It was based on missing apartment numbers, missing dorm numbers. In the end, they were all rejected because the challenges were missing specific details. There's a coalition of Georgia voting rights groups that 
tell me they've had 65,000 voter registration challenges in the past year. About 3% of those led to the removal of a voter. In most cases, it was because the voter had moved. You know, Miles, what are you seeing? Are you seeing similar efforts around the uh, around the country when it comes to challenging voter registrations? Absolutely. And I think it's been really interesting to watch. I monitor a lot of kind of these voter integrity groups that have popped up across the country. There's kind of a spectrum of how intense some of these groups are. You know, in in some cases, these are really well-meaning, good-faith folks who are just kind of looking out and a little worried about how their election's running. In some cases, these are kind of far-right crazy folks who believe conspiracy theories around ballots that came from China and things like that. But the bottom line is that all over the country, the last two years, there has been an infrastructure building around questioning the election's integrity, whether that means training people to be poll watchers in person, like showing up at the polls, making sure no mischief's happening, or whether that's training people to do exactly these sorts of um, registration challenges that you're talking about. So I think across the board, we're going to see this election and then in 2024 that citizens, regular folks, are going to have a bigger role in scrutinizing, whether it's registrations, whether it's people voting by mail. You know, we've heard a lot about people setting up and surveilling drop boxes in places in the country where drop boxes are legal, people actually sitting up and, you know, videotaping who's dropping off ballots on their cell phone, things like that. So regular people are getting involved in scrutinizing elections um, in a way that in some cases there's going to be a lot of questions over how legal some of these actions are. But when it comes to challenges, obviously that's within the rules to make challenges to the registration. And it's kind of up to the election officials to make sure people aren't taken off the rolls incorrectly. These efforts you said of, of election deniers becoming poll watchers, there's also, I think, an effort to recruit them as poll workers. Where's this happening? The poll worker recruitment effort is kind of a two-sided coin and really interesting to me because I was just talking to an election official in Florida actually the other day and I was asking him about this like have you are you worried about election deniers coming in and um, working the polls for you or volunteering to work the polls for you and he said no actually I think that's actually really great I'm hoping some of those folks volunteer which kind of took me aback and I had some follow-up questions and basically his point was that is probably the most effective way to bring people back from conspiracy theories is really get them the information and the nuts and bolts, have them watch an election from start to finish, see how the processes work, see all of the security measures in place. And he said, basically, it's up to us as election officials to have effective supervisors in all of my polling places to make sure there's not somebody like going rogue and doing something illegal, but having somebody who has suspicions or doubts, getting them involved in the process at the kind of ground floor might actually be an effective way to bring them back into trusting the elections process. But what about the issue of even having enough poll workers for the upcoming elections? You know, back to that meeting I was at, they mentioned that they've got just enough workers to cover all the positions, but they have no slack. And and this was a question I asked Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Rappensberger, about, hey, is there enough poll workers? Even prior to 2020 and the situation with COVID, we've always struggled with having enough poll workers. Uh, if you look at the average age of poll workers, it's it's well over 65. Uh, and so poll worker recruitment is always a big issue. One of the underrated aspects of 2022, 2024 compared to 2020 when it comes to poll workers is we kind of forget that in that 2020 election time, the entire country was 
focused on helping this problem. You know, there were like, I remember watching the World Series in 2020, my team, the Tampa Bay Rays were in the World Series. And it seemed like every commercial break, there was a commercial with like a baseball player saying, you know, go be a poll worker. It's really important because the kind of the entire country was aware because of COVID that there was going to be the shortage. There hasn't been that kind of full society effort to push people towards being poll workers, which I think is part of the reason why it may be an issue going forward to get some of that recruitment. Add in the fact that that job is just um, there's more scrutiny than ever before, especially in a state like Georgia, as you guys know, the amount of pressure and scrutiny on even the kind of lowest level workers. I think anyone who watched the January 6th committee hearings and heard the testimonies of some of these election workers and what they went through I don't think it's unreasonable that some people might be having second guesses about whether that's something they want to do and spend their time doing. Another story that we've been following is efforts by allies of former President Trump to access voting machines after the 2020 election, including here in Georgia, in Coffee County. This has also happened in my home state, in Michigan, also in Nevada. Miles, I'm curious, why have voting machines become such a hotbed for conspiracy theories about the election? Yeah, it's something that I've thought a lot about the last couple of years uh, because it does feel like every major influencer in the conspiracy election denial movement does that the underpinning of their conspiracies usually go back to the machines and that there's some sort of algorithm switching votes. And why has that been such an effective medium to get people to believe this stuff? I talk, I've talked to a couple of experts about that and asked them that. And I think a lot of what it comes down to is that technology is a really easy punching bag because most people don't understand it. Like most people are not software engineers or computer engineers. And even I, who've been covering voting for half a decade, my understanding of how a computer actually works? Could I build a computer myself? No. Anytime you want to start an effective conspiracy, you have to kind of glom onto something that the public doesn't fully understand. So that way, when you tell them BS about it, there's the potential for that to stick because they don't have kind of a base level of understanding. The other thing I'll mention, Sam, is the fact that a lot of the conspiracy theorizing around voting machines and vote tabulation machines is not completely wrong, right? I mean, there has been a, a lot of reporting I did in 2018 and 2019 was about the potential vulnerabilities of voting machines and that there were people um, who were arguing that, you know, in some cases, maybe our election security wasn't completely perfect and that there were still uh, things we need to harden. And I think election conspiracy theorists have been able to really effectively take those accurate concerns, even though all of those people agree there's no evidence that hacking actually happened. The fact that there was, there kind of has been this public record around potential vulnerabilities that really popped up after the 2016 election has allowed for people to take kind of nuggets of truth and then build these false narratives around them. You know, with a little more than three weeks till election day, I'd love to know what else you're keeping your eyes on here in these, these, these final days. I think we're going to look back in a few decades at the 2020 election as a potential inflection point. You know, we saw a big transition from 2016 to 2020 in terms of in 2016, across the country, roughly two thirds of people voted in person on Election Day. And then in 2020, we saw that number torpedo down to less than a third of people voted that way. And about 70 percent of people voted early or voted by mail. And I think that trend is going to be something to watch, obviously. There's been a lot of misinformation around voting by mail by former President Trump and other Republicans. And so it's going to be, for me, really important to watch this year how people decide to vote. Like, are they going to flock back to 
um, in-person early voting. Are we still going to see that trend of a lot more Democrats voting by, by mail than Republicans? And so it'll be really interesting to see how 2020 kind of shifted voting behavior going forward. NPR's Miles Parks, thank you so much for joining us. And let me tell you, I really look forward to being on the stage with you as the NPR Politics Podcast records at the Buckhead Theater on October 20th. And if you all want to be there, go to wabe.org slash events for more information, including ticket information. Yeah, it'll be a blast. Thank you guys so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. Raul Sam and I are in Savannah. Stay with WABE for all your debate coverage and look for a special episode of Georgia Votes in your feed on Saturday morning. <laughs>